welcome back for another episode here at Crest Talk. We're your hosts, Jamie Kim, Chloe Lee, and Jamie Freitag. At Crest, we believe everyone deserves support. The Crest app provides personalized support that helps you stress less and accomplish more. If you are new, we just wanted to reassure you that your hosts are all in their separate homes and we are no longer recording in the studio and this is being done over an audio call. So today is actually a very exciting day. We are starting a new segment called Crest Rex and it'll be just a space where we discuss movies, documentaries, literature, books, films, anything, and just dabble in our thoughts a little bit. To dive in, we'll be actually starting with a documentary called My Beautiful Broken Brain. This documentary um, centers around a woman named Loche, and she actually suffered from a stroke. The physicians diagnosed her stroke and they said it was an intracerebral hemorrhage. And mostly strokes are caused by abnormal blood vessels or blood clotting, but the cause of her stroke was a pre-birth malformation of vessels in her brain. So we'll actually just be going through this. We 100% recommend it and we'll actually get through it. Um, Spoiler alert because we'll be actually talking about what happens in her life. So please feel free to join in on the discussion or pause and go watch the documentary first and then come back and see if you had any similar thoughts as we did. Right, and so to kind of kick things off, I just want to talk about her original experience with having a stroke. I think the documentary did it so well in getting the viewer to really try and experience what she was going through. And I'll just say, in my opinion, that was insane. Yeah, I actually study like stroke, dysphagia, aphasia at school, and but I never really understood what it was like to be inside the mind of someone who had these things. And I also thought they did a really good job with the visuals, like what it was like to be in her shoes experiencing these hallucinations the echoing, the moving of the pictures, they made the sceneries all swirly, they used unusual sets of colors, and this was everything that Loche was experiencing that we wouldn't have known. So I, I really thought they did a really good job with that. Right, what you were mentioning, so Loche actually had difficulty with some visual aspects. So she was saying how one eye was fine, but the other eye wasn't, and it was like these weird dimensions. And I really was able to understand how she felt in a way just because, well, not understand, but really see through her lens because the way they did it was, it really honestly gave me a headache. And I couldn't imagine what life would be like if I had to suffer through that. Even walking would be so difficult. I was getting dizzy. I don't know if you guys felt the same thing, but I think they really did work to try to immerse the viewer into understanding just a fraction of what she was experiencing. Something that really stood out to me was um, she said that this experience was somewhere she can get lost in and it was beautiful, extraordinary, and even like a nightmare. And I just thought that her choice of words and the way she described um, this situation was so interesting because she called it beautiful, but like nightmarish at the same time. Right. And I think it's the language that really breaks down the barrier between what Lache was feeling to the viewer because when you're trying to explain something to someone so complex as a stroke, um, kind of how I think we want to do this podcast is in a similar fashion to how they did it in the documentary. So it was like 10 days 
after the stroke, 14 days after the stroke, and then two months after the stroke. So we just kind of want to go through like the different segments of the documentary. So the first one, 10 days after the stroke, um, she was recording herself saying that she's alive, quote, very messed up, but definitely excited to be alive. And for me, it was crazy because before this documentary, I kind of viewed stroke patients as, you know, almost in a vegetative state and that, you know, she wouldn't even know what a camera was, let alone record herself. And, you know, she was speaking slowly, but you could definitely understand what she was saying. So for me to believe that she was with it that much must have been even more scary for her. Within that same segment of 10 days since the stroke, they actually showed um, the doctors trying to run some tests to figure out what really happened. And one of the exercises was they told her, list as many words as you can that start with the letter S. And she had a really hard time. And you could tell it was genuinely difficult. And she actually broke down and started crying. And I feel like just that moment was so powerful. It was just one moment, but it really moved me because you could just see she was so frustrated. And obviously, she knows that she couldn't really perform that basic task. And it's kind of I just wonder how that feels. I feel like I would feel like I don't even recognize who I am anymore. Um, I feel like that's so difficult to face, especially when it's under like a task and you have to do it and you know you can't, but you know you could do that just a few days ago. So for her to break down and cry, she actually wasn't able to do any of the tests that they normally run for situations like these. That's what the documentary told us. So it really does show the extent of the damage that was done, and it was very indicative of a more serious issue. Yeah, when she broke down crying during the test, it kind of reminded me of what her brother said. Oh, I forgot if it was her brother or her friend, but they said that Loche was one of the most articulate person, but now she lost the ability to read and write. And I just can't even imagine how alienating it must have felt to be a part of a conversation like that, part of therapy sessions like that, and know that you used to be able to do all these things before, but now you lost all of it. And it also just kind of reminded me that like accidents like this can happen to anyone, like the stuff that happens in our bodies. And sometimes I'll take my own cognitive abilities for granted when I know that it can be taken away from me anytime. Yeah. And you mentioned how she was known to be such an articulate person. Her job mm-hmm. was actually a producer, if I'm not wrong. Um, she yeah. was a producer for a lot of shows, right? Yeah. And they said, that's a crazy job. It's extremely hard and it requires that she be able to multitask. She was a writer. She wrote for shows and so she read a lot. So she was actually really on top of her game and she knew that about herself in the beginning. She goes, I was, you know, kind of clever and she knew that and she owned it. She had a really tough job and she was so great at it. And I know that a lot of her colleagues were like, so that's what made this even more shocking because of where she came from originally. Um, and kind of backpedaling a little bit to what Chloe said about taking for granted just your co- your simple cognitive abilities to know name as many words as you can that start with an S. Um, it's it's such a trivial thing that you don't even think twice about it. But when something as big as a stroke happens to you, and unfortunately it takes a, a big life event like a stroke for people to realize how essential some of your basic functioning is. Right, exactly. So fast forward 14 days since the stroke. This is just a segment of the documentary where they give us more background about her life, where they give us the recap that she was a producer for multiple shows and she was really good at her job. 
Um, this is actually, this was a very significant moment for me too. She's trying to tell the interviewer, oh, that's a picture of my, and she had to say niece, but it took her a really long time. And when she ended up getting a word out, she said nephew instead by accident. Then she realized that that was the wrong word and then tried to say niece, but then pronounced it wrong. And so it was just, you could tell, I could literally see her thinking and like her brain just pedaling and pedaling and just trying to work and trying to find that word. And you could tell it's like on the tip of her tongue, but it's not at the same time. So I also could just feel the frustration. I really appreciate that they didn't try to help her. I really appreciate that they weren't like, oh, is niece the word you're looking for? Because they obviously knew what, I feel like they knew what they're trying to say, but they didn't interrupt. They didn't try to help her. Um, they didn't cut that part out. It was extremely organic. And you could see, you were able to witness her, her going through the thought process. It was very authentic. Even in school, I remember learning, my professor is telling me in therapy, when you're dealing with a stroke patient and they can't seem to get the word out, don't cut them off. Like don't interrupt them, but let them go through their thought process. Let them say whatever they want to say and then ask them if they need the help. So I also really appreciated that the producers um, waited for Loche to kind of think of the words. And, you know, like aphasia and dysphagia, it's like you lose the complete comprehension of speech sometimes so even when you hear things when you look at things like you don't know what it is for this dysphagia like you lose that motor ability to kind of pull those words out of your brain so i could i imagine like when locha looks at something like she knows what it is in her brain she just doesn't know what the right word is because she's seen this before she knows who they are she just can't place a label on it and I don't know, I would want to like punch something because it's just so frustrating to have to be like stuck in your brain like that. Right. And I think it's so important to realize that the extent that her, all of her therapists went through with her, um, they were all so, so, so good with her and knew where their place was in order to help her rather than, you know, just say, okay, yeah, you knew, you knew it was something, you know, niece, nephew, whatever, you know, and that's something that I feel like I would do because I'd be like, oh, you know, she knew it. She knew it. But they really got her um, to a point where she was able to, I mean, spoiler alert, like communicate very well and, you know, function very well. So mm -hmm. all the credit to them, honestly. Yeah, I was honestly so inspired even by the therapist because as an aspiring speech pathologist, this is something that I would, I hope to do in the future. And I was able to think, I like realized how much patience you need because, and like not cut them off and let them fully process what they want to say. You know what? I, I'm going to have a lot of difficulty doing that in the beginning, but documentaries like this like really inspire me and set a really good example. Yeah. And actually there's a, we wanted to quote something that she said during the segment of the documentary. She said, I feel like a baby, but I am a grown up. I can't, I don't even want to begin to imagine how hard that is because she's aware of her disability she's aware that she can't function like she did normally so i just think that's also extremely traumatic and just to go back a little bit on what chloe said how it's better to give the patient a chance to do it on their own that's such an important skill as a health professional because sometimes not everything you do is going to be beneficial and on the outside it might seem like you're helping them you're like well i'm not doing anything wrong i'm just giving her the word that she's looking for but you have to allow for that internal process to, you know, it's probably dusty and needs some help, but 
you feeding them the answers, I just don't think that at the end of the day it's beneficial. Obviously, it's circumstantial, but it was just a reminder when you said that, Chloe, that sometimes you just got to let them do it on their own. You could have all the medical knowledge in the world, but I think patience and truly understanding what will actually benefit the patient is extremely important. And then fast forwarding to the next segment, two months after her stroke, um, she became an inpatient at a neurological rehab for psychological and linguistic treatment and kind of like physiotherapy just to help her kind of get gain some of those skills back. And to me, this part was one of the most, I guess, like, not shocking, but just like jarring maybe because she knew that she had to stay there for three months and kind of to me it almost felt like like she was putting herself into drug rehab or something because the way she knew that she was going to have to like work on herself and kind of step away from her life to get better kind of had like a lot of effect it had a lot of effect on me because it a lot of people struggle with you know having to go to rehab for for addiction and everything but i've never really heard of uh, rehab for stroke patients or, you know, s- other people with, you know, a psychological deficit or something. So that was really cool for me to see her um, go through her journey there. And this is where they actually input a lot of clips that Loche recorded of herself. It's just, she's just on her own. She's kind of just talking to herself. It kind of seems like she just wanted to keep herself company and she wanted to maybe record her own progress or her own thoughts. And one of the things that she said was, This is where I learned the outer reaches of human vulnerability and strength and what a person, what a human is made from. And you could just see, I guess, you know, being in this type of space alone, you're not with family all the time anymore. They're no longer the ones helping you. It's these medical professionals, strangers even. So I feel like I was also able to see what that does to someone and how you can really begin to think about things that you've never even imagine thinking of before and it this documentary the way that they produce it it just kind of brings you into her own universe of her own circulating thoughts and what's going on through her mind yeah i remember in one of her like her little selfie diary videos she was in bed um it was like lights out and it was so late i forgot what time it was but it was so late and she couldn't go to sleep and she was you know all these thoughts were running through her mind and she was just sharing them but I thought that some for someone who had a stroke, like the way she spoke was so lyrical and so poetic. And I know she lost a lot of her language, but like her character and like the things that she wanted to share with the world, those things were shared. You know what I mean? Like her lack of language, what didn't hold her back from um, expressing what she's learning, what she's experiencing through her time at the rehabilitation center. Right. And that kind of leads into you know, how she was talking about how difficult it was to be, quote, other people's property, you know? So she had uh, every hour of her day planned out for her from doctors, you know, telling her things that she doesn't understand, you know, the speech therapist trying to help her. And of course, it was all out of goodwill of, you know, the professionals, but Mm -hmm. she kind of started feeling like, and this is a quote from her, um, people are hijacking my life. And that's that's kind of powerful because you we always think that like okay more is better like if she's getting you know intense treatment for these three months like pretty much every hour of every day that you know she's going to be happy and she's going to get better but at the same time she has that realization still that like oh my goodness i kind of have no free will anymore you know right and don't you guys feel like through 
her own videos of herself just talking to the camera, don't you feel like you kind of were able to get a sense of how she was as a person before the stroke? This documentary didn't start out with her normal life. We just got to, we were introduced to her as soon as she got the stroke. I feel like with the things that she was saying, talking about human vulnerability and how she was saying it's so difficult to be other people's property, even just those words, I feel like I was just able to get a sense of her strong character. I have no idea who she is, had no idea who she was before the stroke, but for some reason, just through the way she was talking and what she focused on, I felt like I was able to get a little taste of that. No, definitely. She, you could tell that she's very, very intelligent. And mm-hmm. at some points of the documentary, I was kind of feeling like, wow, like, first of all, we could be best friends. And then second of all, that um, mm-hmm. you could kind of see her as she was in pre-stroke, kind of going through her life. Like, there she was. She was an editor and she worked for a company, was very independent. She kind of makes that clear through like these, you know, roundabout statements like the people are hijacking my life comment because you kind of can visualize her, you know, living on her own in the city, going to work, going home, like partying on the weekends and stuff. And then all of a sudden, you know, obviously everything completely changed in a blink of an eye. Yeah, I actually thought the same thing. I thought, wow, I don't, I didn't know this person before she had the stroke, but through her experience at the rehabilitation center, I felt like I knew her a little better because though her brain was damaged, her personality, like her being so outgoing, she's sweet, she's positive, those were all so evidently there. And I just thought that was so beautiful because people can approach what Loche is going through in so many different like angles. You know, they can be angry, they can be depressed but Loche was very like positive and she was like oddly calm um she didn't freak out she accepted all the therapies and I remember when she was recording in the bathroom her little diary she was like it's like it was like seven it was seven and she had to go to bed and she was like oh it's seven but I have to go to bed but she was so obedient and like willing to learn more about what's happening to her body yeah that just showed that just spoke so loudly of who she was before the stroke and after the stroke. Yeah, and being a producer, you are the top dog. You're in charge and you are in charge of communicating with other people, telling them what you want and communicating with other people on your level. So I guess in a way, I was kind of happy to see that because it shows that she was still Loche. She was still herself just at a new season of her life. Anyways, we will fast forward to three months since the stroke. So what did you guys think about this segment? Um, I really liked this segment because it really showed her progress after, um, you know, obviously visiting the treatment center. You could see every single day she was getting better at reading, you know, her fine motor skills were coming back. And overall, I just felt extremely positive um, in this segment because of how far she's come since, you know, the beginning. Exactly. But I will say we were able to see her progress even with her clips how much more eloquent she became. She was talking more fluently, not as much breaks. I don't know if this was significant to you or if you guys remember this part. She had a moment where I think it was kind of dark in her head. and I think she was really close to being very discouraged. She was talking to herself in one of her clips and she was saying, this is not a step backwards. This is an enormous step forward. So it was kind of like she had to keep reminding herself baby steps and what you did today was amazing. You just have to keep going on. When you're in a stroke, it's not like you can, you have like other buddies that understand you and they're with you. You do your therapies alone and every appointment is alone. And 
I feel like she did a really good job in that way of showing that, yes, she was weak at times and she was discouraged at times, but giving herself self-affirmations was amazing. And it's super important to keep yourself in check. It's such a hard battle and it can be so lonely too. So I really enjoyed that they included that segment there of just showing that she was her own support system at that moment. Yeah, during that like time when she was going through a lot of low moments, um, I believe she said this quote, if the physical body of the brain is damaged, does that extend damage to the self? That quote really stuck with me because she learned how to be comfortable with the subtle and unsubtle differences between who she was before and who she is now. And when she kind of like discovered how fragile her mind can be, she also realized that there were like limitless sources. Like even though a part of her brain was quote unquote damaged, she was able to discover other parts of herself that she didn't realize that were there. So I guess this kind of goes back to Loche's positive thinking and her amazing outlook on her life, knowing that her life is not over, her life as a producer is not over, but that she can pick herself up and she can discover all these different aspects of life and herself. Yeah, and actually further down the line, as she progresses, you can tell she's getting a lot better at reading. You can see her working with her therapist and they're they gave her an article to read and she was able to read it and they're like really good job encouraging her they were awesome now we're at seven months since the stroke she actually agreed to do um experimental therapy i believe i know that uh, the documentary was talking about how researchers are seeing if non-invasive brain stimulation can speed up language recovery after a stroke and they saw her cognition was improving, so they she agreed to do that. And you see her signing papers. Obviously, there's a risk to it. It's experimental. You never know what's going to happen. That was a big step, I feel like. And she, she said something like, if it doesn't work out, at least I'll give my body to science. And that was some dark humor there. But it got me more excited at this point in the documentary to see how things would proceed with that. Right. And I think the therapy um, was called TMS, which not super familiar with it, but I believe it has to do with like kind of sending shockwaves through your brain. I think it's very helpful, I think, for depressed patients. They were trying to obviously help her with her problems, but she looked like she was doing well and initially it was helping her. But um, it ended up that after a few treatments, I believe she had an epileptic episode that sent her to complete regression. And definitely the doctors administering it were unsure if that was due to her previous brain injuries or it was triggered due to the TMS treatment. In my opinion, definitely the treatment because <laughs> she was progressing so well up until that point. And for yeah. it just to be a coincidence, I, I don't really buy into that. But either way, it sent her into like a huge step back, which is really, really sad to watch. Right. And also how they were able to capture that moment on camera. Did you guys see how she was like, oh, whoa, while she was doing her reading exercise? Yeah, that's like I just, yeah. And she was like, I just saw a flash. And then the therapist is like, okay, well, um, let's just keep going. And then she does a few more words and she's like, whoa, like she was that, she goes, that was not pleasant. You could tell she's actually really disturbed. Um, she said she had like a lot of flashes and like color and everything. So then three days after, and that was on day 28 of the experimental therapy. And then three days after she had multiple convulsions. So, and they had to contact her brother. First of all, how they were able to capture that. And you could see that that was such a real moment. And 
really made me concerned too. I was like, what is happening? So yeah, I agree with you, James. I don't really, I'm not a professional, not saying anything, but I do have my opinions on what happened. Part of that whole, I guess, trial, what stuck out to me was, I don't know if this was explicitly mentioned in the um, documentary, but after she had that, um, I guess, horrible side effect of, you know, having those convulsions, they actually pulled their experiment from people that had previous brain injuries. So, yes, you could blame the doctors for, you know, putting her through like this novel, you know, not necessarily proven therapy but at the same time like they were able to recognize that oh my gosh maybe we need to pull back the reins a little bit on this and prevent any other unfortunate people that have previous brain injuries from going down the same regression path that Lache did right wow yeah even just the fact that she decided to do this experiment helped so many people already but i couldn't imagine how Lache must have felt when she saw her progress go up but then just like go back down and she just lost all of it and she had these convulsions. I felt like she could have been very like disappointed um, because she might have thought like, oh, she can have all these abilities back. Maybe she can turn her life back to the way it was before, but now she can't. And something that I loved, I guess special effects wise, you could put that in this category, was her reading speed. And they, the effects that they were like helping the viewer see, like that was like my favorite, my favorite part because it was just so cool to, you know, read at her speed, like try to make out what she was doing. And that was like, that was so cool to me. Right. And something else that was also cool to me was she mentioned how meditation after everything that happened to her really helped her. She said that meditation helped her discover the fragility of the mind and its limitless resources and how she felt so empowered from that. It was really amazing to see her, you know, advocate for meditation because I know it's not for everyone, but how she stepped forward and said, this worked for me. And I wasn't really expecting that. I don't know. My head was just, just wasn't thinking in that type of realm when I was watching this, but watching her meditate, she was like in the mountains, she was secluded. I feel like that was such a great comfort for her and really helped her in her healing process. Yeah, I think that when she was in the mountains, she was in France. um, And I think she mentioned something about like finding a raw essence of herself that she didn't really notice before. And she learned how to focus on what really matters. Although she lost this much, she also knows that she has a whole bunch more to gain. And she learned that she was strong, but also accepted her vulnerability. While she was here, she said that she found a raw essence of herself that she never noticed before and that she doesn't even need to return to her old life, which I thought was such a bold statement to make because she's so content and focused on where she is today that she didn't need, she wasn't envious of who she was in her past. And that was such a huge proof that she is, she's changed and that she's strong, but she also accepted her vulnerability. And even one year after a stroke, she was um, had that conference in front of all of her therapists, you know, presenting. And for you to remember back when she was, you know, 10 days after her stroke to now, it's just she made it through so much. And the fact that she, you know, and to quote Chloe, she wasn't jealous of her previous self, that she made it through this horrible, horrible thing that happened to her. And she came out the other side and she persevered was truly amazing to me and amazing to watch. 
And when she was speaking, I was like, who is she speaking in front of? I was like, because they didn't introduce, they didn't say where she was at. I really honestly thought it was something similar to like a TED talk where she's just talking to a random audience and talking about her experience and whatnot. But then one of the people stand up during, I guess, a Q&A session and she goes, the woman standing goes, okay, so how can we as therapists help like future patients? She basically, I butchered that, but that's basically what she asked. And you realize mm-hmm. she's speaking in front of aspiring medical professionals and therapists. I think that's such a great, I, I thought that was so beautiful to see where they, you know, not all your answers are in your textbooks. Not all of them are in the exams or in school. Right you need to really listen to the people who have actually suffered and gone through the pain of having a stroke and having to recover for you to actually know what's best. Your textbook does not know what's best for the patient. Your friend's experience doesn't really, like just because your friend had a great experience and their patient loved it doesn't mean that it's gonna work for you. So I think it emphasizes, again, to really listen to your patients and to not just wave them off because at the end of the day, your goal is to treat them. So you should listen to them first. Yeah, that was really inspiring and so educational for everyone who is aspiring to be a medical professional because they need all perspectives. I also want to mention this part of the documentary that really stood out to me. And it basically talked about how in the brain, with the EEG machine, it showed that when a person truly transcends, they see a wonderful thing. Basically, what they see is the full brain, the brain as a whole lighting up, and they call this a total brain coherence. And it's actually the only experience in life that does that. And the experience gets more and more permanent as that person kind of rises in self-fulfillment and transcends from whatever they're going through. I, I, I don't know, that sounded supernatural to me, just the fact that through a machine, when you look at the brain, how powerful transcending is, like true transcending, where the whole brain just like lights up. But I also thought about how difficult it is to transcend, like how difficult it is to get to where Loche has gotten to, a point where she doesn't want to go back, but she's so happy and content with where she is now. And she's almost excited for the future. She has honestly gone through so much and she has achieved so much. I'm excited to see and know more about how her life is going to be in the future. And I think this goes without saying that me, Jamie, and Chloe all recommend this documentary on Netflix. And it was amazing to see her progress through all of the segments that they had and Overall, yeah, Lache is an amazing person with an amazing story. And definitely, if you have time, check it out. It's not every day that we get to see inside the life of someone that's gone through something as traumatic as a stroke at such a young age. So I definitely, definitely, definitely recommend. Yeah, absolutely. We are now going to move on to a book that we highly, highly recommend. The title is When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi. This is actually a memoir. Again, if you don't want to hear about it before you read it, please pause and go read the book. Okay, let's go around. Chloe, did you cry after reading this? Yes, I cried two times. (laughs) You cried two times? Jamie, what about you? Sobbing. Like like (laughs) any cry I've ever had before. Yeah, Jamie actually sent me a picture of herself sobbing with tears out of her eyes. And Chloe texted me. She's like, I finished this book. I am bawling. I also cried tears like rivers. Okay, so 
to wrap it up for the beginning of this portion, he is an Indian American neurosurgeon, um, Paul Kalanithi, he was amazing. He graduated from Yale Med School and proceeded to study neurosurgery at Stanford. He was amazing, obviously talented, skilled, very well loved. We're gonna get into it because this is, I might go as far as to say this is really a life-changing book that really can reverse your perspective on life. So to give you some background, he was a neurosurgeon, but he found out that he had lung cancer and was diagnosed at stage four, which is, it's hard to treat. It's difficult to hear news at that point. And he lived for 22 months after his diagnosis and died at the age of 37. Before I get into it, do you guys have any thoughts? Yeah, so um, I just cannot, cannot, cannot believe that he wrote this book based off his life experiences of, first of all, being a neurosurgeon. Because, you know, I guess the, the whole joke is, is it's not brain surgery, you know? And here he is doing actual brain surgery. And then he finds out that he has terminal cancer. And to decide to write a book, it's just, it's two huge I guess, life stories that he can tell. And here he is, he decided to tell other people about his struggle eventually and just kind of to leave, you know, part of himself in the world. Like that, to me, just throughout the book held really, really strong. Yeah, honestly, I can't seem to kind of summarize this book into one sentence or like one thought because there were so many parts of it that applied in so many different aspects of our lives. Um, But I guess the main thing that really stuck out to me was the fragility of life and how life is just given and taken away so suddenly. My heart broke because I felt like he was one of the doctors who really, really, really loved his patients and who really knew how to serve his patients. And I don't know, just the fact that he, it seemed like he has so many more years left, but life says otherwise like life says it ends here at the age of 37 and it made me question like why did he have to go so soon he wrote this book he left this book behind to kind of teach and guide all the other medical professionals who are in his footsteps that you know what it's like what it is to be what it means to be a good doctor what it means to live life to the fullest you can tell he's successful and he's good at what he does so it just seemed like he had so much ahead of him. You're right that he was a great physician. His wife, Lucy, she's also a physician. She's an internist. There are many, many interviews with her. She would always say that Paul was someone who stayed late to talk to his patients and get to know them and hear their stories. And that's a lot. A lot of people don't want to stay at work because if you think about it, that's their job. Um, so I think that says a lot about his character. This book, he actually wrote it, and he was writing it up until a few days before he passed. So this is something, this is a huge task that he took on after his diagnosis. And the very last chapter, he didn't get to finish. So his wife, Lucy, actually wrote and finished the book for him. I can't even imagine what that's like for her to have the strength to continue to do such a brave thing. I think that's, I think it's brave in one word to be able to do that and to put all your energy into a project that your husband was really devoting a lot of time to up until literally just a few days before he passed. First of all, to even have that thought in your head that, 
oh my gosh, he's terminal. He's writing this book. He's not done yet. Things aren't looking too good for the next couple of days. To to take that initiative of, first of all, finishing the book for him and then, you know, writing her chapter at the end that uh, made me sob and sob and sob. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> that is just such a huge undertaking that she is one of the most strongest women that I have. I know, I don't know her, but <laughs> that I've ever heard of through her actions, through that action, that was, she knew that that was a huge um, thing for him to try to finish his book before he, you know, ultimately passed. But she did such a hard task in the name of, you know, loving her husband and wanting to honor him that it was just such a great thing for her to do. Yeah. And this love that Lucy had for Paul was, it was so selfless and everything, all the decisions that she made, although it affected her, she made sure that Um, her husband was okay with it and throughout this whole book you can see how supportive she is even in terms of like having a child or um, her his treatment methods like she left it all to him so that he can do whatever he wanted to do he if he wanted to continue to practice she said okay to that if he wanted to have a child she said okay to that and that's just so selfless and it taught me a lot about like love too and what it was like to be in a marriage, um, to be committed to someone who is not going to be there anymore, but to stay with that person until their very last breath. I also wanted to give a little more information about who he was while he was practicing medicine. Um, Though he was a neurosurgeon, he was also a writer, but he also held degrees in English literature, human biology, and history and philosophy of science and medicine, from Stanford and Cambridge universities. And then he graduated from Yale School of Medicine. Right, so with his strong background in humanities, and I think he actually received um, a master's in English literature before even pursuing his medical degree. Do you think in any way, I feel like it really has influenced him before practicing medicine, just because in the book he talks about how he read a lot, a lot of literature centered around the value of human life and what does it really mean and he really honed in on what makes human life meaningful so he was always trying to search for answers or definitions or discussions on what was the meaning of life i remember in the beginning of the book when he was like in high school he mentioned that he didn't know what he wanted to do in the future and he wanted to stay away from medicine because he mentioned that his father was a doctor and he comes from like a family of doctors and um, how he was never around. And for him, like medical school or like medicine equated like absence. So he mentioned that he didn't want to do anything with medicine, but he, he had a deep love for English literature. And I really do think that that cultivated his use of language when he talks to his patients. Um, when I read this book, I I learned the importance of your words and how you talk to your patients is so important because there are moments when um, towards the end of the book, he becomes the patient. And when Emma, his oncologist, talks to him, he like points things out, um, the things that she said, and she, he kind of feels a little like iffy about certain things. And he really like hones in into the specific language. So I really do think that his background in English kind of crafted his skills as a communicator, as a doctor. He has such an obvious appreciation for literature, and he said 
Literature not only illuminated another's experience, it provided, I believed, the richest material for moral reflection. And he also talked about another author, and he said that um, he writes about his awareness of how our suffering can make us callous to the obvious suffering of another. So going back to what Chloe said, he was a patient for the first time to this degree, and he felt pretty out of it. He was like, what is going on? He said he studied it but never felt it. So I think there was this huge role reversal that you can't really understand until you know, you're actually going through it. Yeah, when he found out that he had cancer, he didn't know what it felt like. So in the beginning, the pain began in his back. And he thought to himself, is this what people with back pains live with? Like, do I just not know what it feels like to have chronic back pain? Because he studied and he treated, but he never knew what it actually felt like. And for the first first time, he was on the other side. I felt like for a good period of time, he was in denial of his illness. Like, he didn't want to say that word cancer out loud. Like, he didn't want to declare that over himself because, you know, it's... If you have cancer, it kind of everything kind of spirals from there, and so I think for a really long time he just claimed that it was um, headaches, migraines, or chronic back pain, but didn't really label label himself as a cancer patient. And a quote from him was, "You know, how little do doctors understand the hells through which we put our patients?" It kind of ties into when he was speaking about you know, his cadaver lab. And he says, cadavers reverse the polarity. The mannequins you pretend are real, the cadavers you pretend are fake. But on the first day, you just can't. The knowledge that in four months I would be bisecting this man's head with a hacksaw seemed unconsciousable. Basically, (laughs) for you to go through the cadaver lab, you know, realize that these are real people, but you're trying at the same time to put your emotions to the side. You kind of also do that with your patients that are alive. And for that, you kind of say like, oh, you know, I'm helping them, I'm helping them. But at what point is their suffering just too much? And, you know, you, you see that with him. You see that, I think, you know, he has his like roller coaster of symptoms and his overall pain level goes goes in crazy different directions that some days he's in su- uh, severe pain, he can't even walk, and then other days back to normal and stuff. So I think this was a really eye-opening experience for him through which he was treating his patients with. And he was already obviously a very brilliant person, but maybe more humanized him in a way to his past actions with his past patients. This kind of reminds me of what I did in school this one time where we were learning how to um, treat patients with a stutter. And my professor was kind of testing us on how to make a stutter and she wanted us to understand and know what it feels like to have a stutter and we had a whole exam on who produces the best stutter um this just kind of reminded me like the importance of kind of being on the other side too though it's hard and trying our best to see you know what it's like to be the patient and to receive those treatments And so um, this kind of reminds me of a very, very niche specific incident that happened in the book. And it was when Paul was observing one of the doctors um, when he had to make a tough decision to have an emergency C-section on a patient. And he said, what a call to make. How will I ever learn to make and live with such judgment calls? I still had a lot of practical medicine to learn, but would knowledge alone be enough with life and death hanging in the balance? Yes, he was speaking, I believe, Uh, pre-diagnosis at this point um like you know kind of you know uh as in retrospect but 
he did exactly you know what this quote says would knowledge be would knowledge alone be enough to deal with you know life and death ultimately no because he didn't even realize what he was putting his patients through you know just his robust medical training and obviously he was a brilliant brilliant person but um you know the pressure and how quickly you have to make to think you have to think to make these calls requires that wisdom that second step of like personal experience and so unfortunately Paul had his fair share of uh, personal experiences. A personal experience that completely, completely stuck out to me in this book is he was speaking about um, one of his colleagues that was also going through, um, I think it was her like general surgery. I don't want to say rotation, but maybe she was a, it was her fellowship or residency or something. So she is almost about to get off her, um, you know, 24 hour shift or something insane. And she goes into a Whipple surgery. And something that I didn't know is that they kind of do first an exploratory, I guess, procedure to see if there is metastasis to other parts of the body, because at that point, it's it's not worth it, I guess, to, to go under um, a huge operation like this and, and still have metastasis. So anyways, she was praying to God that the patient had metastasis so that she can go home, so they, they could close up and go home. And Paul revered her as a very caring medical student who was so level-headed and nice person and down to earth but she was so stressed out from i guess just the medical knowledge alone that you know necessarily she wasn't necessarily thinking of the patient in this situation that she just went home and felt so 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 incredibly guilty when the patient had bad metastasis and she was hoping for that you know but it's just these extreme situations that medical students get put into with their, you know, robust medical knowledge and maybe not necessarily, um, you know, life knowledge, but it just goes to show how much, you know, stress and hard times can change a person to make crazy decisions like this and not, and, you know, not necessarily be thinking clearly. So to kind of wrap up my whole spiel is he didn't have, you know, the life experience. And unfortunately, unfortunately, he ended up getting it, which opened his eyes to a lot of things. Intelligence itself is not enough, but you need moral clarity. And you don't learn this stuff in school. It also like made me think about like, like what you said, Jamie, about how pressured she was, how stressed out. Um, You have to make these calls so quickly on the spot. There must be so many questions racing in your head and fear of failure, a fear of killing someone or hurting someone. You're in, you have so much responsibility in your hands, but you need confidence and you need um, this clarity to make sure that this person is in good hands. And that just made me think about how much empathy is required to be a doctor. I always knew that empathy was a key, key trait, but I didn't realize how big it was because like the doctors need to be able to stand in the shoes of the patients, not as themselves, but as the patients. What would the patients want? How would this accommodate to the patient's needs? I think this just yells the theme of anyone working in healthcare has to take care of themselves first, because this is not an occupation where you can let your emotions bleed into your occupation like oh sorry just a bad day at the office it's not it's it's going to impact someone's life it's not like if you work maybe an office job maybe the worst that can happen you give someone attitude you give your boss attitude or whatnot it's not a good look but she was tired the physician that 
Jamie was talking about after a 24-hour shift and she obviously stressed, yes, and she just couldn't wait to just go home and get off her feet. That's understandable, but I think it really does show how like a physician's mindset can really affect what they hope for on their patients and even the quality of care. Exactly. And this ties into this quote, when there's no place for a scalpel, words are the surgeon's only tool. And that's something that Jamie said before is they don't necessarily teach you that in medical school. They don't teach you the words to say when hard decisions have to be made. Um, And I think patients and uh, lay people think that physicians and practitioners are supernatural and hold them to the highest standard in their book that they're, they're the healers, they're the can treat whatever. But in the end, you know, in in Paul's case, ultimately medicine is not God. And there are incredibly hard things to be said that only, in my opinion, comes with experience. I just, I literally just flipped through this chapter and I found this quote, as a resident, my highest ideal was not saving lives. Everyone dies eventually, but guiding a patient or family to an understanding of death and illness. You know, sometimes there's absolutely nothing left for you to do. And the most powerful tool is words of kindness and guiding the patient and the family to do what what fits them and to really serve them the best way you can. So this quote was, it just like screamed at me and it really resonated with me because sometimes, yeah, like words are the only tool left to use when everything else fails you. It's so important how you craft your responses and your explanations to the patients. It can really speak volumes and can also make or break a relationship with them, their trust in you. I love his appreciation for language and translation, communication as well. A lot of physicians out there, I hear this from, you know, my own friends and a lot of experiences and talking to people, they sometimes have no idea what the heck their doctors just told them. And they just nod and go, "Uh uh-huh, yeah, okay. And they're like kind of scared to ask. It's like uncomfortable. Just know if you're out there and you're trying to pursue medicine, it's, you need to also take that into consideration. Your patient did not go to med school with you. That can also be life and death matters. So you can really convey to the patient, hey, this is what you really need to do to heal and get treated and be healthier. Or these are things that you really have to stay away from because X, Y, and Z. Because that can also really help the patient value their own life, take their health into their own hands. And then it could also help them to not have to return to the hospital, which is a good thing. And I also just wanted to emphasize this one moment in terms of role reversal and Paul becoming a patient and what it felt like. He, one of his hospitalizations actually took place during his neurosurgery residency graduation. He, his physician, the one who was responsible for him and taking care of him was Brad. And he wrote, I could see in Brad's eyes that I was not a patient. I was a problem, a box to be checked off. He talked about how instead of feeling like he was being treated like a human being, he was more of a number because Brad was just trying to brush him off and just trying to quote unquote rid of him so, you know, he could go home and like he could be done for the day. 
I don't know how you guys feel about that, but that really broke my heart to imagine feeling like, and this is not just Paul, this is his one experience that he may not have ever experienced if he wasn't diagnosed with cancer, but this is something that a lot of people struggle with, which is why sometimes they don't even want to see the doctor, they're so uncomfortable, and sometimes going to the hospital can make a patient feel so much worse if they're treated like that. It was crazy that Paul, as a physician, was able to feel that. And that's something that you can never even try to experience unless you're in the shoes of an actual patient who needs help. Yeah, that part really stood out to me too. It was when he received the wrong medication and Brad wanted to basically give him the right medication the next morning. Um, And this was because he didn't want to make an extra call to his boss because he knows he messed up. I remember in the book, Paul saying that he was just a part of Brad's endless to-do list. Unfortunately, many physicians are tired and they're so used to seeing all of these things happening that it becomes hard not to see the patients as a chore. So for me, I felt like this was a huge wake-up call um, to really build each other up and to remind each other why they decided to pursue medicine in the first place. I remember I tried to step into Brad's shoes and kind of like see why he reacted the way he did. I couldn't, but, uh, you know, he must have been tired. And at the end of his long shift, he probably just felt like Paul was a burden for him. And I think it's important to note that here he is, Paul, a physician, is, you know, talking to a fellow physician about his medicine change or whatever it was. And obviously it was extremely aggravating for Paul to be treated like this. And here he is. He's in my opinion, I feel like doctors give other doctors, um, you know, kind of like VIP treatment. So to kind of extrapolate it to the lay people, I can't imagine what they're going through, what what they're feeling inside, um, you know, when things like this happen. So ultimately it's hard to imagine what people with, you know, terminal illnesses are going through and then to have their doctors be, you know, not necessarily dismissive, but maybe kind of (laughs) too busy to deal with them. I can't imagine what that's like. And something that was the icing on top of the cake was they had that baby when they knew that Paul, you know, was terminal and not necessarily will be around for, for the child to grow up. And I just cannot begin to believe what a difficult choice that was. Paul saying he didn't want to leave Lucy without a child because he couldn't imagine her, you know, living alone. Um, but at the same time, it's like during the formative years, she's not going to have any help. She's basically choosing to be a single mom for the first, until the baby is <laughs> big enough to, you know, take care of itself. But she has made a huge, huge decision to ultimately have the baby because it's part of Paul, in my opinion, you know? Yeah, of course. That's something that I wanted to discuss with you guys, too. I think that's a very interesting topic that a lot of people would have different opinions on. Um, But having a child together when they know he won't be around. Lucy, as his partner, told Paul that it was entirely his decision. And Lucy had even asked him, don't you think that'll make this illness more painful or make dying more painful? And Paul said, wouldn't it be great if it did? Obviously, my mind exploded when I read that. I don't know how you guys felt. It was just so transformative for me. I, in my opinion, I think Lucy was great throughout this whole thing for her to prioritize Paul's opinions. Because I would understand if Lucy also wanted to get her opinion in there because, you know, it, it is her body, it's her child, and she is part of this relationship. 
but for her to put any fear or opinions of hers aside and tell Paul this is literally your choice, I think that was amazing. So they did go through with it and they had their child uh, named Katie, um, their baby daughter, and when he passed, she was eight months old. And, you know, she's so selfless for making the decision up to Paul because in practical terms, she was going to be the one having to raise the child by herself. And to let Paul decide that was, you know, very, very thoughtful of her to let him make that decision. Um, It was very selfless. And I think we can all agree she was an amazing part of his journey with this whole thing that no one can really tell you, like, they don't train you for this. So I applaud her. And she definitely is someone that I look up to. But also, his team of people that cared for him was amazing. And one of the talks that Lucy gave, she said that Paul's oncologist, who's also mentioned throughout the book, and you can tell they have an amazing relationship. And she really did want what was best for Paul. And not just what was best for him, but what he wanted for himself. So his oncologist actually tailored his chemotherapy so he could continue working as a neurosurgeon. So he's diagnosed with stage four lung cancer and he's still going to work operating and treating other people. I don't know what kind of mindset, like I just can't wrap my head around it. I don't know if I would be able to do that, if I would want to do that. Also the oncologist to, I don't know if she, you know, agreed with that, but she put Paul's opinion first because that was her patient. And for her to listen to him and really understand and communicate with him what he wanted and to tailor the chemotherapy so he could start working was amazing. Throughout the whole book, you can kind of see the relationship between Paul and Emma getting deeper and deeper. Um, I remember like towards the end of the novel, she was talking to Paul about his life expectancy and she told him that he had about five good years left. But Paul specifically mentioned during that during this experience when they were having this talk, Emma was not declaring or saying this as, as in with an authoritative manner, but she was almost pleading, like pleading for him to live for five more years. Um, her tone showed that she couldn't do anything else about his illness and that Everything was out of her control or anyone's control for that matter. Um, Paul concluded this conversation, this memory of the conversation with the quote, doctors, it turns out, need hope too. And wow, that that hit me because yeah. doctors are amazing and they can heal, they can treat, but sometimes they can't. And there's nothing left for them to do no matter how much they want to do it. And at that point, they're just pleading. It must have been so discouraging and even suffocating for the doctors who are just rooting for their patients' lives, wanting to save them, wanting to prolong their life expectancy. Yeah, Emma was an amazing oncologist. And Chloe, I think that's one of, you know, two themes in the book that stood out to me. First being doctors need help too, um, Mm -hmm. obviously in times of illness, but also emotionally and also quality versus quantity of life. We all knew that he didn't have the quantity there necessarily, but he was still making an effort to go to work and write a book. In my opinion, likely for the pleasure of other people because he probably wouldn't live long enough to see its success. And that's what's insane to me. Just the fact that he had so much going on in his life. First, obviously, he was a neurosurgeon. Second, he was writing a book. Third, birth of a child. Fourth, you know, he was married. Fifth, you know, stage four lung cancer. So he had so many things going on in his life and yet he still pushed to 
work on this book to try to finish this book. And, you know, in my opinion, I can't help but think is if this is something that he wanted to leave behind for his family as maybe a source of income, but how did he know that it would, you know, blow up into this global phenomenon that it did? You could have a lot of interpretations of that, I think, in my opinion. I felt like everything that he did in his life was to teach, um, to guide, and to set an example for all the other medical professionals. Yeah, and it was just it was just so inspiring to see that. And even in the little things, even in his small thought processes, this is so evident. I don't know if you guys thought this, but like with cancer, it's not just limiting time, but it limits everything else too. So yes, you have a very short time for you to continue with your life, but also you don't have the energy, you don't have the physical strength, uh, and you don't have the capacity to do the things that you used to do before. Did you, did you guys ever think that, that with cancer, it's not just time, but like everything else too, and it's so difficult to make the most out of it? Yeah, it's something that this book made me really dwell on that idea a lot. And even in my own time, once you read this book, you can't really just stop thinking about it. Like once you close it, it's not over. So that is something that like it made me want to talk to cancer patients, you know, like what is that like? Because I'm not in a position to assume what that's like. And obviously we see stories of people who live their life to the fullest and other people where that's really hard. So I think it is really difficult and it's so circumstantial and it depends on your values and your beliefs and what you prioritize in your life. For Paul, we knew that he wanted to be lucid and so that's why he refused CPR or living on a ventilator. It's such a tough conversation to have, especially when you know you have like a time limit I don't even know if I would be able to have conversations in my time, you know, to sit down and talk with your family or with your physicians to be able to discuss something like that. But that also brings me to my next point. Um, an interviewer actually asked Lucy, what is like, what is one big piece of advice that you could give for someone who's going through something similar like you did? And she said, get a palliative care doctor. For palliative care, just to put it out there, it's different than hospice. You do not need a terminal diagnosis at all. For hospice, you do need to have a certain terminal diagnosis of a life expectancy of six months or less. But for palliative care, you don't need that terminal diagnosis. And she really emphasized that they were great. Once Paul, you know, started getting weaker, his palliative care doctor actually prescribed stimulant medication for focus once he shifted from working to writing. So number one, crazy that he still wanted to write during these times. And two, again, we see the care. We see how the doctors are going out of their way to tailor medication for him so that he could be able to work and really pursue his goals in that short time frame. So with everything that we just said, we hope it's clear to you that we 110% recommend this book. Again, it's called When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi. And we also recommend listening to a lot of talks and interviews by his wife, Lucy Kalanithi. She's so well-spoken, obviously going through something like this. She's learned a lot. She really goes on a lot of talks to share what she's learned and just a lot of the things that she became enlightened to. We hope that you enjoyed this segment. We love talking about it. We hope that now you have an excitement to watch My Beautiful Broken Brain and read When Breath Becomes Air because they are, they are two pieces of great art, you know, in the form of do a documentary and literature. 
especially if you're going into the healthcare field. But also, I feel like these two pieces are so versatile and you don't need to even be interested in healthcare. It's just something for yourself, something for you to think about and reflect on. Be well, and we'll catch you guys next time on Crest Talk. Thank you.